Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. Along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, we have the ethos that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity, because movement is part of what makes your life complete. Moving to Live interviews professionals in the movement field who have a variety of experiences, education, and professional titles. At the end of the day, we all want to move more, and we want our patients, athletes, or clients to move more or move better more efficiently, or move with less pain. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well-known in and outside of the movement and exercise professions. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. Each Moving to Live interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single listen, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. Before we get to the interview, a quick request. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share the podcast with your friends or anyone who understands that movement is a lifestyle. We appreciate it, and our guests appreciate it too. Welcome back to another edition of the Moving to Live podcast. As you heard of the intro, we promote the ethos movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity, try to break down knowledge silos and really give professionals more ideas to help their clients, patients, or athletes move more or move better. A big hat tip to Chris Bishop from the UK for the intro for today's guests. We always ask our guests, if you have any ideas for future guests, let us know. And Chris said, hey, you should interview this guy who's got this school of calisthenics, Tim Stevenson. I said, who the heck is that? Got an intro. Tim was one of those people you can tell who immediately is not all about him. He said, well, I can talk about myself or I can bring my partner in the school of calisthenics on and we can both talk. So we are here with Tim Stevenson and David Jackson, aka Jacko. They are the founders, leaders, et cetera, of School of Calisthenics, which we'll get into. Gentlemen, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. Thank you for having us. What a great yeah. intro. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us on the podcast. <laughs> I think one of the great things when I start looking at uh, guests that I'm having on and, and lurking on social media and checking it out is you can find the interesting backgrounds. And I know here in the US, the major contact or collision sport is football. And very rarely for people who play football at a fairly high level, when they finish, do they gravitate on into other athletic events, often because their bodies are not capable of doing that. There are numerous back, knee, et cetera, injuries. And I think it's interesting with both of you. Both of you are former rugby players. I know, Jaco, from reading your bio, you had a head injury, which I imagine is something that does stop your career. But both of you then have gravitated into strength and conditioning and into calisthenics, which I think is interesting. So starting with both of you, were you multi-sport athletes growing up or was it, did you kind of grab, at what age did you gravitate towards rugby starting with you, Jacko? Um, it was a, yeah, as a, I think as a kid, um, played football was like the big, big, more, more the big sport at school. Like they didn't play rugby at my school, but, um, yeah, played football, played tennis, played, uh, played rugby, started playing rugby when I was six years old um, and actually played for the same team all the way through to, to play, uh, played 13 years professionally at, at Nottingham, which is like my hometown, um, hometown club. And so probably around 16, maybe even a little bit before it started getting quite sort of serious. Um, and then it got very narrow and it was like, you're only doing rugby. You're not allowed to do anything. Even like you can't go skiing because you might injure yourself. And it was like, um, yeah, it, it became, it became very narrow, but it has to, I guess, 
um, to be able to do something at a certain um, if you want to try and maximize your potential in that. And um, yeah, I, I, I loved it. Um, but yeah, back in 2013, had a, you know, you'd say from American football, the, the whole cases of um, the, the problems with head injuries within that. Um, actually, the lawsuit that, that went um, was in timing with one. The issues going on in, in the, the NFL, like highlighted quite luckily for me, because it started to become very sort of serious. Whereas the first time I got knocked out when I was like 18, maybe even 16, it was like, we just used to, we used to laugh about it because people couldn't remember things and and you didn't know those long-term effects. Um, I had a a seizure and a, um, and a bleed on the brain from a a very innocuous challenge playing, not even playing contact in training, just messing about. And um, it was taking a lot less to knock me out. And that sort of, that, that changed the direction of, uh, of my career but I was lucky enough it was I was 31 so it was towards the end of my career anyway so I was lucky enough to have, have had a career and and touch wood so far as I know um have made a full recovery um since then I'm curious if you can think back with that if you had had a similar experience when you were say 21 or 22 do you think you would have made the same decision to walk away or do you think maybe you would have been uh, a little more youthful stubbornness uh, uh yeah and I, I've talked about this a few times before when it's like I knew um, I should have walked away like before, but I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't strong enough to make that decision. I didn't want to sort of, I've always seen like sort of giving up or quitting as like a, as a negative thing, but it was the, it was, it was the right thing to do and the necessary thing to do. But in, in the end it was taken out of my hands by the medical. Uh, so the, the neurosurgeon that I saw was like, once they'd seen my MRI results and stuff, it was like, you, you can't play contact sports anymore. It's, it's not, it's not safe. And I knew that already. I was actually quite relieved when they said that, but interestingly from my own psyche, it was like to, 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 to put your hand up and go, I'm done. Um, it's, it's much, it's much easier when somebody who probably knows more than you or me or most other people says, yeah, it's a good idea to maybe step away from this rather than, yeah. Yeah. It's like, you don't know what's going to happen if this happens again. (laughs) Yeah. And Tim, what about you? What was your background growing up? Were you multi-sport or, yo- yo- or not yoga? Why am I saying yoga? Rugby. <laughs> um, so my probably story is I was generally, I'm quite athletic, but not very good at any one thing. So if you give me like, I can do a lot of things to, to a relatively sort of acceptable level. But I started playing rugby when I was about 10, 11 years old and just went all in. So I just loved it. I, I played club, I played um, school rugby and um, I kind of like... I was sort of like a recreational involved in other things. Like I used to windsurf a lot and I, I love snowboarding and I would kind of throw my hand at a few different things, but yeah, I never really found the sport that I was going to be great at. So I played at a much, much lower level to what Jacko um, achieved. But yeah, from, from there up until sort of, I probably played until I was sort of t- late twenties um, and then eventually retired, <laughs> retired from, I took, I took a bow out of the high level of Midlands four like level horrible rugby getting beaten up by old dudes who just want to fight on a Saturday afternoon um, around late twenties when I had a, another shoulder dislocation and was like, at that time I started my career in strength and conditioning and decided that I couldn't afford now to be injured or not able to do my job. So uh, that was the end of my rugby career and the last game that I, that I played never went back. I don't think I could now. I don't think if I went back to play now, I'd be absolutely flipping annihilated, not use the contact anymore. So you're not one of the uh, former athletes who sits there on the sidelines and watches people play and say, I could do that, or they should do this, or they should do that? No, the armchair quarterback. <laughs> no, that's not me at all. I'm uh, too eager to turn my hands at other things. 
if I watch rugby, I'm like, I'm like wincing, like when they're smashing <laughs> each other. I just like, yeah, yeah, no, definitely not. No, 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 no weekend athletes for either of you. No, I sometimes miss it, you know, like I'm actually at a stage now where, I mean, when I went, I'm kind of an all or nothing kind of person. So when I got into strength and conditioning, like my recreation became about training and um, I've always used my own training as an experiment of what I could then learn and then utilize with the athletes that I was working with. So I just got really into that side of things. And and that's been the story for the last kind of 13, 14 years. I haven't played competitive sport in that time. And a lot of people say, oh, don't you miss it? And I do miss the buzz of the change room. And I miss being around the boys and, and all the chat and stuff that goes with it. Um, but I think partly some of what we've learned and explored and experienced through strength and conditioning in my career has been because you, I think to get on in this field, you've got to love the game, right? You've got to, you've got to, you've got to give it, give it to yourself, give yourself to it. And if you don't, I've, I've come across coaches in the past that don't train, they don't really love physical exercise. And I would always question the impact that you can really have because you don't know it until you've done it. And, and I always had this thing around coaching. I was like, I would never ask an athlete to do something that I wasn't prepared to do myself. Like, I might not be able to do it to that standard, but if I'm going to write a conditioning session, I better be willing to, to put myself through that session. Otherwise, you're just sort of a bit of a sadist and you don't, you don't know what it takes, what level you've got to go to and what you're going to feel if you are not willing to explore and experience it yourself and therefore understand how the athlete is going to feel when you ask them to do it. And um, I do a lot of work in swimming and that's a big case. I think that a lot of the guys are, our coaches are ex-swimmers. Um, but sometimes we'll be like, well, you can do more meterage than that. But you've not swum for 20 years. You've forgotten what it's like to, to do that and then go in the gym and then go and study at university. I, I think that side of things is important. And that wasn't at all the question that you asked, Ben, but that's the desire where I decided to go down the rabbit hole to start off with. I, th I think the rabbit holes are good. I think you hit on something that many people in the movement profession forget about. You really have to enjoy moving. I mean, you may not be able to do the exact activities that you did when you were 18, 19, 20, but I'm thinking of the people who last a long time and do it, they, they find something that they, that they enjoy doing. And I also think that you hit on a really important point that many coaches and professionals don't think about is what is this program or what does this training session do to my athletes? I'm reminded in my doctoral studies, uh, a good friend of mine, his dissertation was on the effects of creatine in the heat. This was in the late 90s. And one of the rules that we had in doctoral studies is if you were going to do an experiment, you had to do the pilot testing on yourself because you weren't going to ask for subjects if you didn't do it himself. And I still remember him crawling out of the heat chamber, <laughs> curling up on the cold concrete floor and saying, I think I need to change the methodology because this is a little hard. <laughs> yeah, I did the same thing. You know, I did my master's in exercise physiology and um, there was an opportunity to get involved in a research study, which was a, an intermittent football specific running protocol in, in the heat. And I can't remember what the temperature was, but um, I, what my, my, one of my core temperature was up close to 40 degrees. They were close to kind of pulling the study because you get into that, that, that boundary where it's not safe. But I had the same thing. I was like, how would I ever as a scientist ask someone to do something if I'm not willing to go and, and do it myself? And I didn't really want to do the study. It was a miserable protocol. Um, but it was, uh, I think that sort of stuff is important. You got to, it gives you so much empathy and and just insight into programming and well in, in research as well to which i just think is invaluable i think i think I've, I've got so much more from having that kind of attitude i'm interested always about how people get to where they are because it's very easy to we talked a little bit before recording about the dangers or the bad things about social media it's really easy to hop on the web whatever your favorite medium is and look and say oh i want to do that 
but there's always a story or stories about how people got there. So Jacko, you retire from rugby, kind of forced into it because of medical issues. Why strength and conditioning? Was that something you were looking into? And then kind of as a segue or a follow-up to that, before we go back to Tim, why calisthenics? Because I think you'll both agree when you say strength and conditioning, people think, oh, weight room, you're running. They don't think calisthenics. They think calisthenics. That's what maybe my parents or my grandparents did in physical education class yeah. back in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. <laughs> um, I guess then, so it probably started a little bit more traditional SNC, but um, I, yeah, I finished and I had a degree in like engineering um, and, and, and even in, in teaching as well. And so I had other like avenues that I could have gone down, but I sort of, I really wanted to stay in sport. I felt that um, I'd learned that much in sport. I wanted to be able to like still use that and carry that on. I'd always, always got, uh, loved, um, loved all the gym stuff. And rather than just like being a meathead in the gym, I, I liked trying to understand what was going on and was very blessed to have a, a very good S&C coach um, during my time. So he would, you know, he would not only, if you were interested, he would, you know, we'd, we'd talk about the uh, about anatomy and what's going on and, and those types of things. So it was something I was thinking about. And um, it was at that time, a friend of mine that I used to play with, went to the same church as us, introduced me to Tim um, because I was like, you know, I would like to get into S&C, but I haven't got, um, I haven't got a degree in, in S&C in like, I'd already done like I'd done a four no five year masters in engineering and then done a teaching. I was like, I don't want to go back and do a degree like um anyway, Tim had done like an internship with a company, Sport 91 in 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 Nottingham in the UK and was like, speak to Tim, see if you can, you know, he had a way in that was um a little bit more hands-on and 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 getting getting um getting sort of qualified and up to speed a little bit um quicker. So yeah, no hooked up with Tim and at that point Tim had already started working with um Paralympic athletes um which I didn't necessarily um have a, a huge desire of like oh, I want to work in the Paralympic range it was like that just happened to be what I was doing but it was one of those things that um you're already having to think outside the box and I think I think we've both enjoyed like, the problem solving aspects of that of like you've just, you've just finished your studies. You've like, take your textbook and you can pretty much just chuck it in the bin because all of a sudden you want to do those exercises, but the athlete in front of you maybe is missing their legs or one leg, one arm, whatever the, the impairment um, might be. And so you have to be able to like take the, um, take the thing that you want to do and the outcome you want to get. And you've got to like, basically like reshape and remold that training environment to suit the athlete in front of you. So it was a, it was a very uh, steep learning curve. Um, but yeah, but Tim did a did a did a reasonable job, I would say, <laughs> of, of, of getting me up to some sort of speed. Um, but there, and then um, the, how that sort of, I think that at the time we wasn't doing. I was looking to get back in the gym. It took me a year to be able to run without getting head uh, headaches and, and some of my head injury sort of symptoms. But I, I always thought I want to get back in the gym because I've always loved training. Um, but I noticed that. I just massively lacked motivation, which was something I was never lacking in before. I prided myself on my motivation. I remember looking around the gym when it was like looking around at everyone else going just in a, in a, you know, in a, in a public gym going like, why is everyone training so hard? Like what are we training for? Like I, there's no rugby game at the weekend that we're playing for or training for. And I realized that my, 
my des- my training desires and motivations are actually linked towards the outcome of the of, of this of a, of a game of this a thing um and uh once that was taken away it was like all of a sudden i'm just i'm just like not wanting to train i'm like what's the matter with me um and that's when like calisthenics just caught the imagination started i don't know i don't even know how it like how it popped up or where so but there was a, a frank madrano video was that's been seen on youtube by millions and millions of people that um just captured the imagination i was like I can now, I don't have to, because what I was doing was I was doing all the same gym exercises that my old coach would have told us to do because I didn't really know any different. It was like I was training for rugby even though I wasn't playing rugby. And it was like, I could do anything. But like, and then it was like, right, that 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 stuff looks cool. Like I'm motivated to try and learn some of those things. And it was like, that's where it sort of started with with me. And uh, and Tim was in a similar a similar place in terms of his training, but I went. He can tell his story about about the context of and learning to to handstand. But coming coming into this, um, coming into the realm of calisthenics, trying to it also became a tool to like fix a broken body from from rugby. Like I'd I've got a separated AC joint and, and a broken scapula in the coracoid and acromion process and um, those things. My my experience of like rugby rehab was. Um, I had very little operations to fix things in the end. It was more like tape it up and like, we'll just try and figure it out and get on with it. So um, there was some challenges along the way, but you learn a lot about your body when you're trying to do like effectively some of the more complex card sense stuff. So a bit can be a bit like they're a bit out there. They're a bit weird and a bit different. And you've got to do that. same the same problem solving we were trying to do with the training environment within the Paralympic realm. It was like, we've got to do it on ourselves, not because we're missing any, or we have any impairments. It's literally just, like our body isn't good enough to do the body weight thing that we're trying to try and achieve like a human flag or a muscle up, whatever those things. Um, well, of course, things. my question that when you're talking about this with your rugby career, the things that you're doing now, and you don't have to say how old you are, but you, you did mention uh, your rugby career, the things that you're doing now, could you have done them when you were 23, 24 playing professional rugby? Um, I, it's difficult. Like, there's a uh, like a a skill acquisition like learning of like a new movement that you've got to do was i stronger back there it's a difficult one to answer because it's like it's so different like tim said like if you played rugby now like and some people that knew you know knew me when i was playing rugby and you now like oh either like you look bigger or you look or you look like leaner or like oh you must be strong like and and go and 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 ask those types of questions and often it would be like the verse oh how do you think you'd feel if you played rugby now and i'd be like I might feel like I'm in like better shape. I'm 39 now. And sometimes I feel like I'm in better shape than I play rugby, but it's like, I'm not doing contact sessions. No one's hitting me every week. And, and equally, if I did, I would be abysmal. If you put me on the rugby field now, I would be absolutely abysmal. I would happily say that. I mean, I was barely any good when I was on there anyway. And and we'll leave, we'll leave it. That may be a, the quote of the podcast. <laughs> Tim, I was really interested uh, when you sent me your bio. And then also with the Paralympics, I was fortunate enough in 1996, I was had the opportunity to work as an athletic trainer for cycling for the Paralympics, and I'd never and also for the first uh, the test event at uh, Georgia Tech for swimming and seeing the U.S. Uh, Paralympic team swimming. And I think for me at that time, I was a young adult working professionally as an athletic trainer. And to me, the amazing thing was I'd never really thought about it before. They're not Paralympic athletes; they're Olympic athletes, and just kind of. The, that's kind of the second part of the question of how you got into that. The first part is similar to what I asked Jacko, you know, why strength and conditioning? Because I think you've got a 
different but just as interesting background as Jacko and how you got to where you are now. And I suspect when you were 18 years old, if you said now in 2021, you'd be here talking on a podcast to some guy from the US, you go, yeah, I don't see that happening. <laughs> um, yes, I, I'll try and give it to you relatively succinctly. So I actually ended up studying business, business and management studies at university. I wanted to do sports science, but the careers advice at the time was do business because I was relatively good at it. Um, and then at least if you don't want to do sport in, in a few years time, you've got something which you can use. So I went through university. It didn't really sort of, business was okay, but I kind of got through it. It was I was more about playing rugby and socializing than, than my degree course, to be honest. Came out of, of sport, uh, out of university, sorry. And a lot of my friends were off to graduate schemes and they're going to go and work with Hewlett Packard and, and big companies. And I just wanted to travel and to go and see the world. And it made sense to me to try and get paid to do that. So I, um, I actually went and became a scuba diving instructor for about three years. So I went to Australia, um, worked there for a while, then came back, went to Zanzibar in off the east coast of Tanzania and worked there for a year. Um, and then after that, I kind of felt that probably uh, I should think about getting a proper job because I'd met people in the industry in, in scuba diving who, who'd done it for a little bit too long and basically become unemployable um, because we are effectively beach bums, right? With, with a decent level of qualification, we take people swimming daily. Um, with a bit of some equipment it's not like it's it, you, you learn some skills but it's quite easy to get trapped in it so i came back to the uk got a job in sports development and started doing some work with a strength and conditioning company and i just loved it while i was in australia i really got into training in the gym and i became like a proper bro guy doing like four sets of bench a week um and like never training legs and occasionally doing pull like so i was i like got into that like horrible kind of like awful uneducated gym thing but i enjoyed the gym environment so i came back started working with these guys at sport 91 i got a place on an internship that they were running and they offered me a job and i started working in the university system to begin with and i stayed with them for about five years just like looking after the performance teams at a uni and and um and that sort of thing which was great i learned so much there because i mean i tell people now when they ask about it but i've probably worked with over 30 different sports over the years and, and that a lot of that was in university and what was amazing about that was I loved going from rugby to netball to football to golf to wakeboarding because the, the athlete cultures and the mindset was just an amazing melting pot opportunity to get really good at reading people and really good at adjusting how you're going to coach. So you can't speak to netballers like you do to rugby players. You have to be of a completely different approach. And I loved that communication challenge. Um, and at the same time, I picked up for my UK Strength and Conditioning Association accreditation I needed to do a case study and, and I was guy I was working with in sports development at the time was a double leg amputee marathon runner called Richard Whitehead he'd just gone 257 for a marathon so this guy's still like shifting if people know about a marathon time um it's double leg bilateral uh, sorry double leg, same thing he's bilateral amputees through the knee so he runs on straight leg pylons and I started working with him and that goes back to Red Jacko's point of uh, he was the first athlete that I'd coached one-to-one -one, um, specifically and all of a sudden you got a guy who can't squat, can't lunge. What does our assessment process look like? How do you even begin to write a training program? Has he got full set of hamstring musculature or not? Like what's the glute doing? Like it was crazy. But I love complexity and that's something that I've kind of come to really embrace over the years about the problem-solving nature of it just properly got my brain ticking and I like to be a little bit original and i don't always like being told what to do and, and the paralympic sport was an amazing opportunity just to go and be a bit of a like a non-conformist and to, to go and tread my own path because there was no research that would tell you how to get a double leg amputee to run a two-hour 42 marathon which is what he ended up doing no one can tell you what you're doing is right or wrong so i, I kind of love the autonomy of that uh, as difficult as that makes it because you you have to 
take risks and really back yourself in how you're going to write programs. And Paralympic sport is a relatively small world. You know, like you start delivering performance games for some people or one person and other people find out about it. I got into some working with some swimmers and some more athletics guys and it just sort of scaled from there. And it became a specialism of mine really, I guess, and started then working with the British Paralympic swimming team and went to the Rio 2016 games to do the holding camp, then into the village itself and still working as a consultant with within Parasport now. And I honestly think it's an area of sport that every strength and conditioning coach should spend some time in, whether it's full-time or partly, but you, it gives you an appreciation of understanding movement patterns and like particularly around what if the, what if the conditions aren't perfect? Like what do you do when you've got somebody who's missing a hand or a leg? And I mean, I got to the stage where I'd have maybe eight athletes in the gym prior to Rio, all with different impairments. So we have an intellectual impairment, a visual impairment. We might've got a, um, a guy with no hands and only one foot. And, and, and how do you, how do you manage that session when you've got eight or nine people on completely different training programs? There is no room to go in there and go, here's a whiteboard and here's today's session. So the, 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 ind- the individualization behind it all, I think is just an a- unbelievable opportunity for people to learn a lot about coaching and not enough people do it in my opinion. So it's amazing how you get these ideas or things pop into your head when you're doing these interviews, you're talking about this. And I'm thinking back 20 some years when I was running uh, and just met a guy who was a wheelchair athlete. He was a pusher and got to talking to him. And he was saying, yeah, you know, all the research says that I'm supposed to take this amount of carbohydrates and do this and that, but it doesn't work for me. I have to do more than that. It's like, why is that? And it was like the first time I had to take my training and say, oh, well, you're not using your legs. You're using a much smaller unit of muscle mass. That's probably, well, it's like a light bulb went on and it's like, oh, this is all of these things. You know, I was 21, 22, all of these things that they give you in a textbook are a good starting point. But unless you have that originality of saying this doesn't work with this person, as you mentioned with the eight or nine athletes, you miss out on it. And I think one of the things that's very clear from talking to both of you is the argument could be made having the atypical background is beneficial. Uh, Jacko, I would imagine that there are times where your engineering background, especially when working with Paralympic athletes or some of the calisthenics, you can kind of apply that and say, I can see how this can go. Is that correct? Or am I just kind of... Uh, yeah, no, no, for sure. For sure. Because it's, um, it's problem solving. It's, it's, taking, it's taking principles and applying them to like real life examples. Um, and so the the context of it just just changes but just because it's not a just because it's not a a, a turbine that you was working on and it's something like the and it's got no seemingly relevance it actually it there actually is it's it's there's it's it's like you're you're testing you're retesting you're you're making theories you're making judgments and you're trying to figure out whether they're right you've got to try and do it with a bit of a a scientific approach so that you actually not just you know, stabbing in the dark. Um, and so, yeah, no, for, for, for sure. And it's, it's, it maybe sounds a little bit out there, but I sort of, it's one of the things that I've really enjoyed about what we've done is I feel like I use a little bit of everything that, I, that I've done. Like I've done rugby coaching in the past and teaching. And it's like, even though I'm not coaching those things, it's still, it's, it's still coaching. It's still trying to get the best out of people. It's still trying to, you know, one of the things I love about the coaching is the, that mindset side of it where you're going like, I'm going to try my, I feel like my job is to, I'm going to try and get you to believe that you can achieve more than you currently think is possible. Like, and, and then, and then actually give ourselves the tools 
uh, to physically go and do that. But a lot of the time that starts with, that starts right up there in the mind. And I think that there's, you know, as coaches, we have a huge um, impact on the mindset. And I, I probably take that approach or have that as, a, as something in my like coaching DNA, because I've had coaches, you know, do that to me, bring the, bring the best out of me and, uh, and it being, and it being all about a, a mind game rather than, being the best they chose the best exercise for me to do because you know let's let's be honest like there's 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 any there's a number of different ways you can you can you can program for somebody if we if we all had the same group of people or one athlete in front of us and it was like right program we'd all put something slightly different down on the floor and you could argue as to which one was best but ultimately the person that's going to get the best result is the one they're able to get the best out of the actual athlete and, and I wouldn't, wouldn't we argue as well? People love to argue about that sort of stuff. That well, isn't we're, that. We're, we're, I'd give it up. I'd be like, well, I'm not that good at programming. <laughs> like, but yeah, mine's not that good. <laughs> I know, Jacko, when you said that, my first thought was uh, bro science Tim, when he was in Australia, probably would have argued for, for one thing. And I mean, it's it's interesting that it seems like the older you get, the more people that you meet, the less you know. Yeah, you just go, the more I know, just like, I don't know anything. But you do know, but then you have to give check in. So you're like, you you know an awful lot more than you used to do. It actually makes me more um, insecure about my knowledge. The more stuff you, the more stuff you learn about, and the the more people you almost like. It's a little bit simpler when I used to think that I've right. I've got to the end of my studies. I think I know what I'm doing. Like, just just get on. With there, it, there's the, there's the old saying or new saying, which I don't think is used often enough. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I really, that's one of the reasons I think I enjoy the podcast because every single one I leave and it's like, I should have known that, or that's a good point. I need to look back to that. I'll give you a quick book recommendation if I can, Ben, which is on that point of um, Adam Grant's Think Again. If people haven't read it, there's um, he talks a lot in detail about about this exact subject and it is brilliant, um, particularly about the, it's the Dunning-Kruger effect, isn't it? About that, uh, he, he references that point where you come into an industry and you um, you think you know everything and it's like you're at the top of what he calls Mount Stupid. <laughs> and, it's, um, and that is for me like, I'm, and, then, and then you drop down, you go down into that pit and you're like, okay, I don't, the longer you stay in an industry, the less you know until you get to a point where you've been in for a certain amount of time when you actually start to think that you know a little bit more because you kind of tried and tested things but to your point around social media there's a lot of people sat on mount stupid um with, with not and, it, and it's very easy i think probably even 10 years ago before it was so easy to get on whatever your social social medium of choice is it was difficult to get your voice out there now if mm -hmm. i wanted to i could start a podcast or i could start a website tomorrow literally that said calisthenics sucks and we and we could go back and forth on that because .com. I think someone's already I think someone's already got it. They 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 send us messages on YouTube all the time. <laughs> I could, actually, it wouldn't be .com. It'd be .edu. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> .org. <laughs> so I'm curious now. I mean, both of you clearly have a interesting background. We're talking with Tim Stevenson and uh, David Jackson, aka Jacko, who are the owners of School of Calisthenics. You kind of described how you came together why a school of calisthenics or what was the purpose and from looking on the website which we'll have linked in the show notes i mean you do a variety of things from classes online coaching retreats you know first of all maybe for listeners who are maybe not in the field but are listening because they're movers or they are in the field and are not really sure what is meant by calisthenics or what are calisthenics it's effectively we're talking about progressive bodyweight training so a lot of times people will um like wrongly put that in the box of push-ups and um, maybe a pull-up 
as exciting as it gets. Calisthenics would take that a lot further. And often the kingpin sort of movements of things like muscle-ups, handstands, human flags, um, strength-based handstand work, that kind of stuff. Um, oftentimes it has a kind of like a borderline with some of the strength-based yoga positions that people will be, will be familiar with as well. There's kind of an overlap there. Um, but it's all the way down to, I mean, a lot of my training these days will focus around what we would call fundamental skills of just using body weight on pushing and pulling patterns, whether that be on bars or rings, typically closed kinetic chain kind of movement. So the hand fixed on the floor or in the, on a bar. Um, and yeah, it's, there's, for us, a big part of it was around play. And that was one thing that we found when we got into it, that it was just gave us the freedom. We Being in strength and conditioning for a while, I was going into the gym, much like Jacko, and being, oh, I'm going to squat for the next four weeks. Like, Am I doing five reps or should I do 10 reps? Like, what do I want? But I'm basically doing the same thing. When we found calisthenics, we were like, oh, look at all this new stuff we can learn. Like it was just fun. Um, and to, to how it started and why we now have a school of calisthenics, it was a it was an entirely organic process. We started playing around with it for our own enjoyment. I the, the story Jack had mentioned before was I'd had two shoulder reconstructions after the latest one. I'd, I'd done all the physio and still dislocating my shoulder. Um, the rehab basically didn't work. So I decided that if I could learn to handstand, then that would give me some confidence that I had a stable shoulder. That was a starting point. Um, and we kind of just explored and played around with it and then some people at the gym that we were training at at the time um just came and asked us if we were to put a workshop on we were obviously making progress because we were flipping awful when we started like really bad uh, two old broken rugby players trying to learn things that you learn when you're 12 or 13 years old it was quite funny um how bad we were but we started to get all right as we just we'd be used what we our kind of analytical brains and what we'd learned from Paralympic sport about breaking movements down and we put a workshop on and some people came we taught them to do a human flag in seven weeks um and we we're like oh, you know this is like this is quite fun to be teaching something a bit different and it, it also you know let's talk about the business side of things strength and conditioning in the UK you're not earning a load of money it's a, it's a difficult industry I don't know what it's like in the states but it's it's hard um, and having a side hustle as it's often now been popularized as a term seemed like an attractive thing for us to try and build a business on the side to support our lifestyle around what we were doing with our performance focused um, training programs with our Paralympic athletes. So it started like that. And then we, we put a beginner's PDF guide out and it just, it just scaled and we added to it and, and it is what it is now today. It's, it was being, it was very unintentional to start off with. It came from a passion project and, and started to grow. I think what's interesting is people who have fun and enjoy and are long lasting in the industry come up with the idea of doing something different or doing it better. And you hit on a point there. You said, you know, it was fun. And I, I just read a, a research article or read the abstract this morning that I'm going to have to read the whole thing. But in the, in the entire world, over two thirds of the po adult population does no physical activity. And I suspect if we talk about westernized nations like the US and the UK, it's even less and I'm thinking even more with what's gone on the last 18 months or so with COVID where people can't get to the gym and do their whole thing. What, you, what you're doing with calisthenics is, as you described, not only fun. I know when I taught uh, in face-to-face -face classroom, one of my extra credits for my students often was anybody who can do a handstand gets an extra three points in their quiz. <laughs> and I mean, you know, it's on the one hand, you can say it's kind of stupid, but they were in a physical activity major and, you know, I was 30 some at the time and I could do a handstand or I, I could do a headstand. So that's why I had him do it. Yeah. Why is it not more popular? Do you think in the strength and conditioning field, not for people who where their goal is to 
you know, if you're playing rugby, obviously the goal is you want exercises that are going to enhance rugby performance or football or whatever it is. But the general population who does, they go to the gym. It's like, okay, the next six weeks I'm squatting and I'm benching and I'm going to try to achieve my goal. And then they're done. And it's like, well, okay, what do I do now? Why not calisthenics? Where, as you said, not only it's fun, but you can literally almost do them anywhere. I mean, if you want to go out on a city street and do a, a human flag on a uh, on a light pole, you can do that. Although people will probably look at you a little strangely. <laughs> uh, can I jump on this one, Jack? And you can yeah. dovetail. Um, let's just kind of like remove one thing out of the, the misconception. You can get seriously strong doing calisthenics. Um, there's a lot of people that would you could who could military press a significant amount of weight and you'll make them look like a, a, a toddler strength by putting them into some calisthenics progressions. Now, you can argue specificity of movement and all that sort of stuff, but one of the major benefits from a training perspective about calisthenics is it forces you to think about the whole continuum and let's simplify it down to mobility, stability, and strength. If you're going to do a freestanding handstand push-up, you've got to have good mobility, good stability, and good strength. That's how this human body wants to work. When we stick it into certain environments, and, and I will never say that there is no role for military uh, or for, for Olympic lifting or strength-based barbell works in athletic preparation or for any member of the population, what I'll always champion is diversity in how we phase training programs and getting good at multiple different things. So if you are talking about general population, well, let's generally get good at lots of different things when it comes to movement. Let's not specialize in one specific area because that's not how life works and that's not what we need. If you are an athlete, then yeah, okay, we're going to have a higher degree of specialization required. But historically, why is calisthenics not more popular? Well, it was what we did to get strong before we had barbells, which I think was around 1918, 1920, something like that, when we had our first barbell. And then there was a rise of bodybuilding um, through the glamorization of that in the 80s. And then gyms kind of opened up as a commercial entity. And I think we just culturally decided that, well, I have to do this. I have to lift barbells and I have to do strength training. I have to go to the gym. But as you said, to your point, we've got two thirds of the population that are, don't do any physical activity. Gyms don't make people healthier. They don't work. Otherwise everybody would, there's not, no one's short of a gym to go to. Um, it's the fact that the gyms largely for a lot of times can be quite boring for people because they are, don't have the right goals in mind. They're not got the right support. They are just athletically or physically not that literate. So like it just, gyms and exercise is just not fun for them. Um, and I think we've, yeah, I think, and I'm also like, I'm trying to become slightly more kind of controversial as I'm maturing, but strength and conditioning industry came, was born by strength coaches, people that liked lifting heavy weights. So all of the education, when I started, I, I did my accreditation in 2010, it was still like that then. We are now a much more open-minded field in terms of understanding the role of different movement and strength training practices. When I started, it was like, unless you're Olympic lifting, well, what are you even doing in the strength and conditioning? That was the program, variations of the Olympic lift and don't worry about ankle range of movement. That's somebody else's problem. Get them strong. That'll solve all the, all the issues. So education, I think, is still very much focused around these kind of practices. And I think it's probably a lack of awareness and understanding from practitioners of what's available to you with a massively minimal amount of equipment that costs next to nothing in comparison to what you're going to spend on a, even a barbell. You can get your home gym set up for the price of a barbell and some plates um, and how effective that can actually be for you. I mean, go and buy a set of gymnastics rings for $30, for, like whatever probably the single most effective piece of equipment that you can use for the upper body bar none pound for pound. And I, I I'll stand by that. Um, 
uh, yeah, I think people need to broaden their horizons a little bit and and not be so dogmatic about we have to do these trading methods. There's roles for everything. Understand where it fits in a, in a periodized plan and and utilize the best tool for the right job. Yeah, and a, a little bit of a a curveball would be that um, we've done some work with um, the Scottish Rugby Union and uh, the 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 football that the English Football Association here in the UK, where some of that close connected chain shoulder robustness stuff that Tim was talking about is that they've actually um, they had us in to deliver some workshops to like the physios and SNC coaches because they see it as um, as a way to actually add some of that variety, but also hit some corners of movements and vulnerability that that, that they notice with their players that um, around the shoulder, and they see that getting outside of just those simple like common sort of movements that we do and actually are we preparing some of our some of our athletes for the you know the dynamic nature of the sport or the the chaos that they're going to have on the field um so it isn't just something that's for you know me that's training at home although it, it can be a great variation um on that but you know and as tim said it's not it's not that it is one modality that we can potentially utilize more effectively rather than just thinking oh once someone's comfortable doing um a, doing push-ups as a as a, a young athlete growing up then we'll get them onto the bench press and that's how we're going to provide that overload um we're just getting them better at, at, at a very sort of stagnant movement pattern rather than giving them giving them movement options giving them robustness giving them variation to to then utilize particularly on sports where you know, if I think back to like rugby or American football for your, your your context of like, did we never like the the positions I know that I got injured in and other people that players that I got got injured in were 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 positions around when I'm thinking about around the shoulder that we just never trained. We weren't we weren't prepared. It's like vulnerable positions, but just because it's vulnerable doesn't mean we can't still try to provide some more you know, awareness, some more robustness, some more strength and stability around those, around those movements. Um, so yeah, it can be, it can be, it can be useful at the, at the top end of sport as well as, um, just at, at home for those of us that like messing about basically with, uh, with minimal amounts of equipment. And one of the things that as both of you are talking that it brings to mind or brings a, a question for both of you, one of the things in the U S and Canada, and I'm, Sure, it's been mentioned. I know it's been mentioned in England too. Is the the term long term athletic development, cradle to grave movement, yeah. and I'm thinking like in the U.S. one of the th- one of the big problems with youth sports is you know you've got kids who are seven or eight years old and they're specializing in a single sport, so they may be a phenomenal basketball player, but if you watch them run down the street or try to throw a baseball. Um, you know, you kind of cringe, almost like if you're trying to w- watch me uh, kick a rugby ball. So I, I'm, I'm wondering with your both of your backgrounds in movement and in the strength and conditioning field, if you were going to work with kids or you're going to work with your own child, would you change up that progression of what Jacko said? It's like, well, you know, the typically it's like, okay, you're good at push-ups. Now we'll move you to bench. Would you stay with calisthenics with with youth longer before you went to the air quotes, traditional weight resistance training? Uh, this is probably a massive amount of bias coming from me, but yeah, like, I don't, I don't know why you wouldn't. Um, I think when we, when we, what are we trying to do with, with a, a long-term athlete development? We, I, I wrote the, um, 
like a physical literacy framework for, for our British Power Swimming Program. And so, what do we what do we want as we, as we get athletes from to coming from a young age? We want to give them movement options. Surely, as coaches, we will know when we get an athlete that comes to us. If they can move well in a variety of different patterns, if they have good body awareness in these different shapes and patterns, they are a doddle to coach. It is not, let's be honest, it is not difficult to get strong for the majority of people. Yes, we have the law of diminishing returns, but for the most part, when we get athletes in, there is getting them strong is not difficult. Getting them to move well is the, is the actual challenge. So if, they, if we get an 18-year-old who comes to us and moves like garbage, we have got to do years worth of preparation work to try and get them to move better at the same time as meeting the performance requirements of the system or the sport that, that they're in. If we're, if we're talking in an, in an elite pathway at some level, if you get an athlete who comes in who moves well, absolutely. Let's go. Let's take the, let's take the brakes off and we'll do, we're going to throw all sorts of stuff at you because we haven't got such remedial work to do. So, and that's one thing that I would mastery of body weight and awareness around that. It's, it's fundamental. Why do we like training people that were dancers or had a basic level of gymnastics from a kid? I would be able to walk around when I was at university. We get the guys coming during freshers week, first week of the, the training. I would walk, look around a room of 20 football players, girls, let's say, and I'd pick out the, the girls that had either done dancing or gymnastics because they just move well. Um, and then and you, you stick them in the weight room and they just go because they understand it. I, I just think we're often too much in a rush to kind of go and think we've got to go and we've got to get into what we would say as our traditional lists and you can get people super strong. No one looks at a gymnast and goes, that's a weak person or they don't look good. Like they look incredible and they move really well. And we don't need to do elite gymnastics training to do that. We can get the same benefits, but those guys aren't in the gym doing bench press and bench row very often. They're on the rings. They're on, mm. they're, they're, they're on the bars. They're hanging, they're swinging, they're rolling, tumbling. Um, we just need to make that more accessible to other people. But I think it comes also down to a skill set of coaches have got to be confident. And, and Jacko, you probably touch on this one, but we need to get them play. Like, yes, the, some people will find enjoyment in the gym, but what they learn from, we talk about exploring physical potential, like what you learn from having the freedom to move in different ways and explore what your body can do. Is, is huge, not just from how strong do you get, but it's huge from an understanding of creativity. How do I, how can I move? And people that have an understanding of how they can move and what their body is capable of can probably, I would like to suggest, go on to do, to be more creative in their actual sport and do more things like someone like Ronaldo, like the guy's a creative player. Like what was his physical literacy like when he was a kid? I would like to bet that he wasn't super super specialized i don't know his story i might be proven wrong but there'll be enough cases to back it up i'm sure mm. well there's like something i'd we touched on before about like mindset with with calisthenics you get a little bit more of that we call it redefining your impossible like you see you you know you see something you try it or your coach says right i want you to try this is in part of your warm-up and this and this is where it's contextually it'd be it doesn't have to be the whole of someone's training program it might just be one or two prep exercises in their warm up for the shoulders. Um, and, and, and just that they might, when they first try it, because there's not just this strength element, there's this skill element and it's like, and it's new and it's different. You've got to control the whole of your body, not, you know, not be supported by a bench and then just move a bar or whatever in a, in a fairly simple, like movement pattern. So what you'll, what you'll often get is, we're able to train a little bit of this, of this mindset of like getting people to achieve more than they think they can do. So they try it first and say, I'm cranky. That feels impossible. Um, 
And it's like, okay, they do that. Like maybe even sometimes in that session, it's like then they were able to do the thing for a couple of seconds or whatever it is that they're trying to do. Or maybe it takes a few weeks, but we're able to remind them, well, remember you couldn't do that. And, and look what you can do with your body now it helps to sort of open some of those mental uh, barriers or open some of those doors in the mind to make us believe we can do a little bit more. Um, I, will, I want to just throw a little curveball out there. I've never really said this before. And the answer might be no. And, and, and I'm sure some people will be a, a definite no. But when you're talking about physical literacy and the difference between um, specializing early and you think that as a, as a strength coach or as a coach, as a person of influence, on the athletes in front of me, do I have a responsibility to not just make them the best athlete that they can be, but what about their physical being and their mental well-being when they finish playing? So if I give them no ability to be able to do anything other than row in a boat, and then when they're on land, they're like Bambi on ice. Like, am I am I serving them as a as another human being? And some people will say, well, no, your job is the strength coach, just make them strong for their sport, their rowing. But um there's there's a bit of a a bit of a wider um question potentially posed. It's, it's 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 one of those it's maybe it's a question not to answer but just to ponder i think it's a good pondering and i think it's you'll see the people who you look back on who've had an influence on you maybe 20 years from now you'll go they did meet that they did give me some tools or maybe they gave me a comment I'm reminded with both of you, the comments of fun. Three or four years ago, I had the good fortune to herniate a lumbar disc and go through the rehabilitation process. And one of the things I realized during that is I'm a runner. I'm a cyclist. I love to be outdoors and doing that linear straight ahead motion. My balance sucked and I had a tendency not to have fun. So one of the things I do now is I walk across like logs and things, maybe not calisthenics, but it's fun. And it's amazing how it's improved other areas. And from the podcasts, I saw somebody who did pogo sticking. So I got a pogo stick and I'm a 50 plus year old man who's out on his back patio using a pogo stick. So kind of to build on your comments uh, with the younger generation or the or youth, you see so many trainers or fitness people who work with older adults. It's like, well, we got to get them in the gym. We got to get them lifting weights. We got to get them stronger to reduce uh, the risk of sarcopenia to get them to improve their balance. Why not some form of calisthenics as part of the training program for adults who are maybe not athletes per se, but we want them to be able to be mobile longer. We want them to have a reduced risk of falling. Yes. No. Hell yes. Hell no. Yeah, no, like uh, we see, you know, you, you, what you've touched on there is that you, we see that and you go, we have real life examples where you do some, someone, you can see someone wants to, it's like, oh yeah, and they're like, I remember when I was like 12, I used to do like cartwheels and I'm now 45 and I'm sort of not sure if I dare like even like try it. And sometimes people just need the permission to go like, yeah, do some, like try, don't injure yourself, but like we'll, we'll regress it down to like a really, it's going to look nothing like a car to start with until you build like your confidence up, but like taking yourself back to some of those things that you used to do as a kid um, and playing, like we just don't, we don't play as adults. Whereas as children play is literally the way that we learn. Like we think that, um, you know, we get, we get taught now or conditioned now that like learning has to take place in a classroom and there needs to be a coach and a teacher and there needs to be all these parameters and we have to make sure it's controlled and we go and do this and you, and you go, but you learned how you made the greatest um, 
achievements in your in your life in terms of your like learning and physical development when you were a baby when you had no coach you had no training program there were no reps and sets there was no nothing like going from not being able to walk to being able to walk is like a phenomenal feat do you know what I mean of learning and you figured it you literally figured it out on your own um there was no think, strength and conditioning coach to teach you how to uh yeah how to walk I don't know. It might have, was it was it all play at that point? But it is like you. you we learn through. They've. I'm trying to think. What, who's that playbook, Tim? That we've. I'm trying to think of the guys. Uh, Brown. Uh, Stuart Brown. Stuart Brown. Yeah, it goes into a great book on. It's literally called Play, um, and showing how, like, literally in the animal kingdom as well as in with with us humans, that play is literally the way that we like learn boundaries as well as like learn skills and things and you know you you see that you see it with kids if you let them do their own thing they will make up games and they will play the the one of the problems that we see too often now and we've we've had um simon brundish from the uk speaking about this on our podcast where like the the org like organized sport too early takes the play out stops letting the kids make their own games up in their own boundaries and limits what they do from like an hour session. They do like three minutes of physical activity because most of the time they're stood around waiting for their turn and, and what have you. Um, and interestingly, when you see kids, you talk about calisthenics and you see kids on their own, you put, um, you, you take um, some adults down to a, like um, a, a, a park where there's lots of bars and things to hang on and stuff. Most of the adults like don't even know what to do or can't even hang on to a bar because they're so deconditioned. Whereas the kids, they'll grab on, they'll skin the cat, they'll come around. They're they're literally just um, just playing. I remember being my final little bit. I remember like distinctly, we were waiting for a ferry on holiday, and it was like boiling hot in France, and like everyone was just literally like dying, and we just wanted to like get. There was some massive delay, and we're all just stood there and like, getting out of our cars. It's too hot, and then there was like a barrier that these a couple of kids from a family just started playing on, and they were like literally what we call skinning the cat, like grabbing the bar. They were doing it like a backward somersault whilst holding onto the bar. And just literally, I was like, I said to my wife, I was like, they're doing calisthenics. They don't know they're doing calisthenics. Like, and, and who cares? Why, why do we have to put a label on it anyway? But like, they just automatically were doing the things that like we're trying to teach adults to do because there's so much richness in it, not just from a physical perspective, but there's that enjoyment of of play and and actually reminding ourselves of some of those enjoyments we had as, as children when we were doing this stuff. Great comments. We've been talking to Tim Stevenson and David Jacko Jackson. They are school of calisthenics. I think the take home messages for me really promote the ethos of moving to live that movement is a lifestyle at the end of the day. If you can't move in a variety of ways and if moving isn't fun, then you kind of wonder what's the purpose. Gentlemen, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. I always know it's going to be a good podcast when I have a a whiteboard with a number of books on it. And on the one hand, I say thank you. On the other hand, I say damn you, because now I've got more books to buy and my pile grows higher. So gentlemen, thank you very much for uh, giving your time and sharing your knowledge. Pleasure. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, pleasure, mate. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live wherever you find podcasts or on our website, www.moving2live.com. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live and check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH. 
F-I-T-L-A-B-P-G-H.com, which focuses on people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Because movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. Until next time, keep on moving.